We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Again, I, I think your book is good. I, I would actually recommend it. But you know what your book reads like to me? It, it reads like a eulogy over a rotten corpse that got what was coming to it. That's what it reads like. I'm putting that. I'll put that on the the That's going on the that's going on the paperback book book jacket right next to the Taylor Lorenz quote. <laughs> If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. Antonio, you look 10 years younger. Uh, you mean the shaving? Yeah. Yeah. I have to do that occasionally. You know, there's ageism in tech, so we have to grapple with that. <laughs> Where are you? Are you in the Bay? I'm in the Bay Area in the office of my startup, which is across from the Blue Bottle right here in South Park. So I'm, I'm like I'm like a parody of myself. Love it. Yeah. Uh, ben, ben, where are you based? Uh, Brooklyn. I'm in, we have an office in Manhattan, but I'm in Brooklyn today. Cool. And and Eric, are you, are you still a transient tech bro in Miami? No. So normally I'm in Miami, but I'm actually visiting SF for the next uh, 36 hours. There was someone I, I want to recruit. You're going to be the last, you're going to be the last one in Miami, wandering alone <laughs> no, no. through the streets. <laughs> I'm, I'm moving back to SF. I've, I've already established. Uh, <laughs> Love it. I, I, I Just took one this. summer. Yeah. It won't, it won't be the last. Well, it, um, in Miami's defense, I was raised in Miami, Ben. Miami's big enough that to be blunt, it doesn't need tech, right? Like tech could leave. No, and totally. you, don't, you, don't, you don't need, I mean, oh. if tech leaves SF, the city's over. It leaves Miami. It's like, eh. So, but yeah. But yes, I do think that oh, yeah. the tech wave is definitely receding from, from Miami. The conceit of the show, Ben, or one of them, is that um, Antonio is always defending Miami while living in SF, and uh, our friend Mike Solana defends SF while living in Miami. In Miami. Uh, <laughs> I know Mike. I know Mike well. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like, I feel like in SF, you can be the coolest and most attractive people in town, and then you go to Miami, and you're the least cool and least attractive people in town. Why do that? <laughs> the same goes for intelligence, but the inequality goes the other way. <laughs> Different kind of intelligence, but yeah. Did, um, are you recording this, Eric? Because Eric always secretly records what I think is not recording, and then he publishes it like the outtakes. That's, the cold, the, that's the cold open. Man. I, I saw <laughs> the little countdown. I'm on guard. That, that's the cold <laughs> open in video. Ben, uh, thank you for, for joining. Is there anything you want to discuss before we get into it? Otherwise... 
yeah no i'm no I'm, I'm open whatever you guys want to talk about obviously i'm cool. you know trying to sell books but uh yes in a fairly chill way yes right here um, here we have it here we have it Ooh, yes plug. ben w- welcome to the moment of zen thanks thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me on so ben let's first start with the book traffic why this book and why should a tech audience read it? What are you trying to tell uh, Silicon Valley? What should they take away from it? I mean, you know, in some ways, it's it's the story of a bunch of really fairly sizable venture capital bets that did not pay off at all. But also, actually, one of the most interesting things that I had totally forgotten that before I started reporting it was that there was this blink of a moment after the tech bust at the turn of the millennium, where there was a kind of conventional wisdom that that New York was becoming the capital of tech and of innovation and of and of venture capital. Actually, a little the way Miami had five minutes, you know, last year. The sorry, Eric. Um, <laughs> R.I.P. Um, and you know, and there were these. There was this set of companies that were kind of at the intersection of media and culture and tech, basically. You know, Gawker and BuzzFeed, but also Etsy and Foursquare. That and, and that that, that kind of came up in this little tiny downtown New York scene and and you know ultimately like that a lot comes out of scenes and that to me was what was so interesting was to sort of like to kind of like try to dig back into this lost world where there was all this creativity and innovation and people who really did see this huge wave of change coming in media and you know thought that they were going to be the masters of it can i add something to that ben the reason why i thought your book was cool that i've been reading this past week is that you're a character in the own book. You're, you don't have the sort of remove the typical journalist take. You're an insider in it, which I don't know if my book's up there. Oh, those are the foreign translations. But Chaos Monkeys was a similar thing of like the story told, because you are a character in the story. The scene in which uh, Jonah from BuzzFeed is pitching our friend Mark Andreessen, you're, you're, you're sitting at the table when that's happening. And so you're, you're not just uh, the, the scribbler at a remove, you're, you're actually part of the story yourself. And in fact, some of, the, some of the, the climactic parts of the book, the Steel Dossier, for example, you, you were a key actor in the drama effect. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, cause I was I was sort of a secondary character in a lot of it, but then occasionally, and it's and some one of the reviews said that I didn't have a lot of self awareness, which is probably true. I was just trying to kind of record what I what what I saw. I mean, though, I, though actually, you know, one of the things about these scenes is whenever you arrive on a scene, everybody says like, "Oh man, you should have been here last year," um, and that is how I had felt about that downtown scene with all these huge characters and ambition and conflict and rivalry. And I had sort of been on the outside looking in of that and got to BuzzFeed in 2012 and heard all these great stories that I was not there for. And so it was interesting to go back and report them out. I mean, they've been saying that about Burning Man every year too, Ben. I don't think it yeah. sounds like you. <laughs> I think you saw yeah, most exactly. of the action. So, yeah, exactly. Is it fair to say that the the you know there was a ton of venture capital poured over the past decade at you know media first sites, whether you know BuzzFeed or Vox or Upworthy or you know all these types of companies, but also in publishers, whether it's Medium or Substack or other you know uh, kind of not novel um, you know enabling technology, but just that most of those failed. Or, or might you know not achieve their um, you know expectations, but in, and in fact most of the value was just captured by incumbents, whether it's you know Facebook and Twitter on one hand or New York Times on, on the other hand. Is that a is that too simplistic or is that direct, accurate? No, I think that is basically right. I mean, I think right, like the talent, the ideas, the tech didn't tr- turned out to be things that the incumbents could copy or hire or you know build. And then yeah, I mean, I think that you know. The thing that maybe for this audience is more interesting than for a lot of people I talk to, but that I'm so totally hung up on is 
going back, it was just so clear what our theory was. And, I, and, and there's a question of like, was this delusional or did it just not break that way? And the theory was that the, these new digital networks, primarily social media, are these distribution networks like cable in the 80s. And, you know, the cable, they laid these wires and they needed content and they and they created an ecosystem where they made tons of money and content providers like ESPN, MTV, CNN built huge businesses because they, they knew they needed all this content. And so very healthy, sort of robust, fair ecosystem. The theory, I think, of investors and entrepreneurs in like 2012 was like you have these huge new platforms and they're going to need to move up market too. They're not going to want to go on public access forever, you know, like as cable didn't, it's going to get competitive. They're going to be competing with professional film content. They're going to, you know, like they're going to need to professionalize and that these new content companies will be the sort of winners in that. And that just never happened. And there were certainly people who said that was idiotic. It was never going to happen. I mean, I don't know, Antonio, was, did you think that was idiotic and was never going to happen knowing Mark Zuckerberg? Um, well, there's a lot here. I mean, I, I would say, Ben, I think you're, I think you're selling, yourselves and by yourselves i'm waving generally at the buzzfeed and gawkers of the world short in that sure a lot of those businesses either failed or are in the process of failing but you definitely changed the nature of media right like it's not like it was a no-op and nothing happened <laughs> like a lot of things happened right like a lot of i mean i mean a lot of i mean one of the heroes or i think you one of the few people that you actually give a sort of glowing character characterization to in the book is jonah peretti of, of buzzfeed and he was largely right right even though buzzfeed certainly isn't at the valuation that they raised on probably or whatever. But this, I mean, the reason why I like your book and, and would actually recommend people reading it is because I think you were an insider in the changing of media, right? Gawker, even though it got totally wrecked by Peter, I mean, deservedly so in my opinion, but whatever, changed the nature of media in a very real way. And you, you can't look at media today and say, oh, they were wrong. <laughs> the direction of me, like they, they thought the world's going to go this way and it went this way. It's not true. The world went this way. They just weren't able to monetize on the shift, right? Yeah, that's totally right. And I think if you ask Jonah now or you ask me ultimately, like, I mean, I think we have regrets about particularly like there was a period where we were spending too much and could have run a better business. But I don't think we have big regrets about having done it. Right. I mean, it, we do. I do think that, like, in terms of the culture of the poly, it was really interesting and central and did a lot of did change things mostly for the best. People forget how, like, lazy and inward looking the sort of mainstream media in America in the Iraq era was. And coming out of that, like, there was good reason to be like, Jesus, like, I'm stuck with these three networks or whatever and a couple of newspapers, and they all got the biggest story of the era wrong. And, like, none of them have figured out the internet at all. Like, it was a moment of, yeah. That was pretty interesting. Well, but speaking of regrets, Ben, I mean, I, I do get a hint of regret, perhaps again, where you, where you play a key role in this book, which is in the publishing of the steel thing, right? And it seems to me, and this is perhaps where your critics said you lack a little self-awareness, because in your description of it, you basically said, at the end of the day, I published it because I was going to get scooped by Jake Tapper and it's going to attract a lot of attention, which it did and which I enjoyed. And here we are. And then there was a little bit of dancing around the fact of, well, it was defensible to publish it, even though we didn't, we couldn't actually confirm it. And in retrospect, a lot of it was false because the public needs to know. But do, do you still stand by it? I mean, do you? 
in retrospect, I feel that you are unfairly, I feel slightly unfairly (laughs) characterized, Antonio. Um, Yeah, I know. I mean, I think, I guess I would say what you're, I mean, yes, I do. I think I felt like proud about it and that it was like obviously the right thing to do at the time. Now I feel like very ambivalent about it. Like, it's not like you would look at that and say, wow, that thing really, really settled as, you know, settled American politics once and for all. That said, when you look back at why we actually made that decision, which wasn't just somebody had made all these allegations, it wasn't even just that somebody had made all these allegations and everyone in Washington knew them and was acting based on them, which was the reality. Harry Reid, John McCain, people like that. You can. It was impossible to explain what they were doing if you didn't understand that they had this document. And by the way, every journalist did know they had that document and was not explaining what they were doing. So at some point, like in my sort of gawker brain, like let the audience in on it. Come on, you shouldn't have these secrets. But then, yeah, see, and it wasn't my comp- competitiveness with, with Jake, um, though he was obviously unhappy that we published it. But CNN then comes out and says, not just there's this document, it's been briefed to the president and the president-elect, but also it says Donald Trump's been compromised the Russians, and it was assembled by this very credible former Western intelligence official. So at that point, you're like doing the thing where you're like, I have in my hand a list of 100 suspected communists, and you can't just... I just don't understand how it could possibly be tenable just to do that. We're going to show you this, like, here it is, this document, very credible, says the president's a spy. Just going to leave it there. Like, that's not a possible. I mean, at that point, obviously, it seems to me you have to show people what you're what you're holding. And I do think at the time people thought it was, a, I mean, Donald Trump's, you know, held a press conference the next day to call BuzzFeed a failing pile of garbage. And um, there was a wide perception that our publishing it had been sort of a, a gift to the resistance. I think now the conventional wisdom, which I agree with, is that Trump benefited from it because it exposed, because it was one thing to have these whispers that there were credible allegations that Trump had, whatever, whatever, and intelligence is such a fun word to throw around. Like I always think of like, in a way, like instead of mythology in the modern world, we have intelligence. You know, people talk about it with all this sort of esteem, but then you see it and often it is insane rumors that don't have good sourcing. And, and I do think that that's what this was. And it helped Trump to ultimately to expose it, which wasn't our goal either way. Okay. I mean, you claim I mischaracterized your description, but I, I mean, it's you're expressing what I got from your book, which is that there was regret about this after the fact and that you, in fact, you feel that it helped actually get Trump elected, as a matter of fact. Well, I mean, I'm enough of a ideologue about journalism that actually, it was after the election, but I do think it- right, Yeah. I just, you just don't, you just can't make your decisions based on who you think it's going to help politically. I just think that's so corrupting and I didn't. And I am pretty ideological about that. I just feel ambivalent about it because I also feel like I thought, I guess I thought people would, which is, uh, this was delusional, that people would be like, okay, I understand that like these are unproven allegations and I see your disclaimer and your caveats and I'm going to like weigh these. And instead people were like, holy shit, they the spies caught Donald Trump doing something terrible and now they're going to get him, which was something that would then happen like 60 more times over the next four years. But you had to know that would happen, Ben. I mean, you're not a spring chicken here in the media world. You, no, you but I was happened. I was overly, I think I was sort of ideological about like show the people all the things you have and they will make, and they will sort of make, you know, they'll weigh it. I, I don't know. I was wrong about that. What would you have done today? Or like, yeah, face your evolution. You know, I would have stapled this. I would have sort of physically attached the disclaimers to the document, but I don't really think that would have mattered that much either. But I don't think having a world where everybody, where it's universally known that there's a secret document that says the president's a spy is an acceptable outcome either. It's probably worse. I do think that's worse. 
you, you reject, I th- was it Wes Lowry or someone said that journalists need to have like moral clarity or uh, I'm trying to remember the words that he used, um, but just kind of admit that, hey, we're not, we shouldn't be striving for objectivity anymore. No one's objective. Everyone's got a bias and, you know, we should just report that, report that way. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, it's a big argument in journalism where often like the terms aren't that closely defined. I mean, I think like the narrowest version of it was that there was specifically essentially a deal that newsrooms made with black reporters that was like, we want to have a more diverse newsroom. We would like to have black reporters, but your deal, if you come here is we really don't want you talking about racism ever. And a lot of, and that was like a pretty unfair deal that a lot of black reporters rightly sort of rebelled against. I'm not sure, but, but I think sometimes people sort of like want to then, and that was what I think it's some of what Wes writes about, but like if you actually look at Wes's work, he writes a lot about police violence and he always calls the cops and tries to figure out what really happened and gets their perspective. And I think that kind of thinking led to a lot of lazy journalism, actually about tech, among other things, in which you sort of start by being like, who are the bad guys? All right, we got moral clarity that these are the bad guys. So we're not going to like be that careful about what happened in the details. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I want to tell you about my new interview show, Upstream. Upstream is where I go deeper with some of the world's most interesting thinkers to map the constellation of ideas that matter. On the first season of Upstream, you'll hear from Mark Andreessen, David Sachs, Balaji, Ezra Klein, Joe Lonsdale, and more. Make sure to subscribe and check out the first episode with Mark Andreessen. The link is in the description. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy. It's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. Right. Well, I, I think Wes's point is a deeper one, right? It's not just about the point you're making about um, the newsroom politics. It's more, does objectivity actually sort of still obtain as a journalistic virtue, right? And I've actually written about this for Wired Magazine, which is a, a block away from here in Soma, about how, in, in some sense, the objective journalism that you and I were raised under, Ben, right, uh, in the time of three networks, that, that's not been a constant, uh, it's, that's not been a constant in the American firmament. In fact, if you go back to the founding fathers, they had a very different style of journalism. It was actually way more like the Gawker style of journalism than it is like the New York Times we see today. And is that necessarily a bad thing for people to go back to what is basically a pamphleteer a pamphleteer's media scape, or not even going back that far, even the, the early 20th century, late 19th century, you know, the press Democrat was the Democratic newspaper in that city, and you had a Republican one, and everyone had their version of truth. In fact, this is still the way journalism largely works in, in much of Europe. It's actually a very American, Anglo-American unique thing to claim that journalists have to be objective descriptors of the truth. And I think what I get out of Wes's statement, not that I've read it that deeply, but it's like, may, maybe we should back off of that statement, right? And in fact, we shouldn't claim objectivity at all. That it's not, it's not all the truth that's fit to print, right? That in some sense, that's a very naive standard. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I, I, I basically agree with that. But I think that you've got to have something that replaces it. You could call it professionalism. But like, there's a lot, I mean, a lot of, 
it's a it's a sort of a short step from saying that to just trying to smear your enemies and elevate your friends and which is what a lot of the partisan press does and not really be that concerned about what's true. And I think there's like a kind of, I mean, I think a lot of what people are looking for now and is feeling like they're talking to an individual who obviously has biases and not just biases has like expertise. Like if you're writing something about Facebook, like I, you may not be always correct, but I'm interested in what you have to say. Cause you know, a lot and like, and if I'm writing something about the media, similarly, like if it's an interesting or if it's an interesting provocative thesis, by definition, it could be wrong. And I have to know that. But I also have to like get my facts right and care a lot about the factual part being right and know the difference between a fact and my opinion. And that's, I don't know. I think that like w- there's some space where you can care about facts and truth and not get too postmodern about the nature of truth, but also acknowledge you're a human being who has a point of view. I don't know. I find that hard to reconcile with the message of your book, which is called Traffic, right? And, and again, I think what you describe very well in the book, and I'd recommend it to people, is the shift in media from standards of truth that you're describing, which sound very admirable, and ones of simply engagement numbers, which indeed aren't actually inclined in one political direction or another, but are very different than capital T truth, i.e. what happened. It's more like... Oh, for sure. And you're quite candid, actually, in the book about how you, while you were working inside this machine, were, were, were gunning for the engagement numbers, right, more than anything else. Well, we were, you know, I, I don't know. I put it a little differently. I mean, it's not like publications forever weren't obsessed with their very crude subscription metrics or circulation metrics. The television wasn't obsessed with ratings forever. That The Press Democrat in the you know, 1800s wasn't obsessed with how many copies it was selling, right? It's just like they were all flying without instruments. And then suddenly, like, we got instruments and were able to steer incredibly, you know, see the, see the temptations so clearly and sometimes fall for them. But I mean... In a way, this is why I think the sort of populist Trumpy right found these tools so well suited to them was like they were willing to go all the way. Like they wanted to destroy the institutions. They were not interested in accuracy and truth. And so like, I mean, to me, like, I mean, this is in the book, but it was a really interesting moment for me. I went to visit Steve Bannon in Trump Tower when he was chairman of the Trump campaign in the summer of 16. And he had made a real study of new media and was obsessed with it. And he'd run Breitbart before he was at the campaign. And the thing he wanted to know was why BuzzFeed had not gone all in for Bernie Sanders the way they had for Trump, like why we hadn't just like followed the traffic. And I didn't really have a good answer. And my answers were like, well, like, that's not what we do. We have sort of these old fashioned values and we want it to be fair. And, but like, that was the truth, right? But it actually put us at a huge disadvantage, I think, in that landscape. See, I would, I would have a very different read on it, Ben. I mean, in fact, you mentioned in the book that a lot of the techniques that you pioneered with Joan and BuzzFeed were then co-opted by the right. And you sort of lament that in a way. But I, I would say, and you kind of deride that as the populist press. What I would say is it's not necessarily populist, it's popular, right? And the views expressed, I mean, Ben Shapiro makes a mint out of the Daily Wire. Um, I've heard various numbers leaks. It's, it's a lot of money. That's the startup of this generation, for sure. Right, right, right. Right media has actually had successful business models. They've had successful BuzzFeeds. While the left is not, in fact, the most no, successful. They, they've had a lot of unsunsuccessful ones too. Sure, I mean, sure, if you sure. look at Breitbart or the Daily Caller, these aren't particularly successful businesses. Sure, Similar sure, but if, situation. Right. But if you were to cite the successful leftist media venture, the New York Times is actually doing very well right now, right? It's digital media subscriptions, I think, actually outpaced ads at some point last year, year before, which is actually doing quite well. But that's within the rubric of a very institutional framework, right? The, the rebels, and again, you, you very much, and it's funny, you yourself, after BuzzFeed, went back to the New York Times, like literally the man itself that you had rebelled against for years. And then, then you went back to the man and now you're doing a new venture again. I know that's but some is, real psychodrama. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's going on there, Ben? How, how do you go back to the New York Times with your tail between your legs, writing as a media reporter for two years after having 
basically railed against them for many years at BuzzFeed. Well, I think what happened, I mean, I don't think, I mean, this is, it's not a parallel situation. There isn't a New York Times of the right. And, and the Times did then essentially, you know, partly well, as the, the Wall Street Journal maybe, boring, but, right, yeah, I mean, but not, not, yeah, but not, not really. And as, as the, you know, as the sort of, like the business turned, right? Like, as you say, like we had this huge cultural impact, this huge scale, but started running out of money. And Facebook, for all sorts of reasonable reasons, are not turned against news. And so a lot of refugees from this sort of new digital media, like went to the New York Times, which was suddenly booming and thriving and, and interested in like absorbing all everything we knew. And so me and Kara Swisher and Corey Sika and Dodi Stewart and Ezra Klein, Ezra Klein. Yeah. all wind up at the Times. And of course, then like the Times and, and it, along with lots of other people and the Times has sort of swallowed the whole internet, which is of course like a bag of lunatics who hate each other and have different ideas about journalism and or have all, as you say, been like railing against the New York Times for our whole careers. And then like shockingly, there's a lot of internal conflict at the New York Times pretty soon. And I do think part of the reason it seemed like the Times was losing its mind was that it had like swallowed just like this bag of cats, basically. I mean, it's, it's weird, right? It's ironic. Most of those it's people are gone now. Okay, interesting. I mean, Ezra and Dodai remain, but it's, yeah, but it's a, I think there was sort of a swing of the, yeah, it's interesting. Taylor Lorenz was at the Times for a time, like a whole generation of internet people who had come up, as you say, kind of railing against the Times, but also didn't agree with each other. So it's like a very complicated thing. Well, some of them are still there. I, t- t- I mean, Taylor is, who blurred your book, uh, is still at WAPO, right? So she's still kind of in the, yeah. in the mainstream machine. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Ezra is, I don't know, it's just, it's very ultimate. I mean, imagine... Imagine Facebook had failed and Mark Zuckerberg, tail between his legs, had gotten a job at IBM, right? Like, this is the equivalent of that in some sense, right? Yeah. It's, um, no, I found it kind of depressing. I'm not. Right. It's, it's, it's like, <laughs> well, really? Facebook did you were depressed to work at the New York Times, Ben. It, it felt, you, you. No, you, it's felt like defeat. Yes. It felt like absolutely. defeat. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. You were the sort of conquered army being led off to, yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I think if fairness would be, you know, Facebook acquired WhatsApp, uh, Instagram, all, all these companies that they themselves were maybe railing against. You know, this happens in tech too, right? No, but IBM is sort of the analogy. As though it's as, well, no, you know <laughs> yeah. what it is? It's Microsoft. It's Microsoft. Exactly. It's Microsoft. It's like what if yeah. Microsoft was suddenly a hot company where in like you wanted to work there, but actually that is real. You know, <laughs> that is kind of true. Actually, these huge, um, <laughs> well-capitalized companies with great brands are certainly in media are just way more enduring than I thought. Like I think, I mean, the thing I always feel is I go, you know, I've been promoting the books. I've been at Thirty Rock a lot, going on, and I, you know, go on MSNBC sometimes and CNBC. And but I used to go to Thirty Rock and feel like I was visiting, you know, the Intrepid, that decommissioned battleship on the west side of Manhattan. Like I felt like I was visiting like a museum of like a, a decommissioned form of media, like the television. Like it takes so many people and all this. It's so crazy the way they produce television. And now it's like, it's kind of got a pep in its step and they're really good restaurants in Rockefeller Center now. And like, I'm on, you know, MSNBC talking about how the internet, how all this internet media is dying. It's similarly depressing. Can we talk about uh, a little bit about uh, tech media? I mean, I know you started in, in politics and you came from Politico, but you, but you did do tech reporting in your day. Um, yeah. I'm surprised you didn't go into it at all, but you're someone involved. Another kerfuffle you're involved with, Ben, was the uh, whole Uber story. Which I had yep. to hear an earful about you from Emil Michael when I interviewed oh, him on the podcast. My regards. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he'd be happy to send you his, I suspect. Um, but um, but yeah, um, it's funny when I think back to it because uh, again, as you know, I'm one of the few people who's kind of bounced from tech into media. I wrote a book, wrote for Wired, and yeah. did actual reporting, and then bounced back to tech. Did a, the Substack thing for a year. And now I'm back in a, in a tech startup, and um, 
it used to be a very different world, right? You mentioned Kara Swisher. Recode's offices used to be literally down the street. I can almost see wired from the window of this office. And those were those were media properties to to fear and contend with, right? And I, I went on Kara's podcast a couple of times, I think after the book and maybe before that, it was a big thing. She held court. Everyone beat a path to her door and making the, the, the Kara weekly interview was a big deal. And Wired was a big deal. Now, I mean, seen from the inside of tech and maybe everyone has their own blinkered feed center view, of course, but that world is gone. And I, I can't think of a single tech journalist from that generation that to be totally blunt for a second, even remotely matters to anybody in tech. The only exception maybe Casey at Substack actually has done pretty well for himself. Yeah. My impression well is Kara is still under some people's skin, even if they don't want to say it. Uh, po- yeah, possibly. <laughs> yeah, I think she probably still annoys them. But in terms of like, is you know, yeah, is no, it's she true. I mean, I so feel like more? she's not. Right. No, I mean, I, I kind of pains. Like, I feel like the single, the like the total meltdown of the relationship between tech and the media that covered them is like a big sad story for its own book. Like. And it was, you know, my, when I came up, it was like, I mean, I was again in political media, but, you know, TechCrunch was sort of this joke that it was so close to the people it covered. And it was like, and the joke about tech media was that it was had sort of in cap, it was sort of a trade, a captive trade press that was cheerleading its, you know, subjects and hoping for PR jobs. And then, and then I think maybe partly because they were sensitive to that perception, I think mostly because of the politicization of everything around the Trump world. Like it flipped and, and I think a lot of, and some of the worst tech reporting started to like act like it was, you know, that like that Facebook had created Donald Trump and only, and only they could expose it. Um, I don't know. And it's, and actually like, I find often talking to entrepreneurs, like it's like impossible to like translate like i've sort of been a bit on both sides coming and you've been a bit on both sides and there's probably like 80 percent of factual things we could probably agree on and have some disagreements but like i definitely sometimes talk to people where it's like wow we have totally it's like our views of this situation are so irretrievably different it's like really and smart people it really pains me actually and i think there's like kind of blame to go around actually like i do think that sometimes people got stories written about them they didn't like and developed big conspiracy theories about it that were nonsense because they'd done stuff that they didn't want public and it became public, like perhaps mutual friends of ours, and um, or said things that they actually said and were mad that they got printed. And that's just sort of like, you know, I, that's not something I would apologize for. But like the Cambridge Analytica story is the one for me that is sort of emblematic of, like you see why reporters got that wrong at first, because these guys were out marketing themselves as an agency that had figured out Facebook and won the election for Donald Trump using secret psychographics. But I remember I like I read that first article in the Swiss media that said that assigned and I was like it's incredible like what a great story assigned like great investigative reporter Kendall Taggart who dug into it for two weeks and wrote me this memo that was like this is total bullshit it was a scam they never did anything and I was like that's a great story too write that so she wrote that and no one read it because that was not the story anybody wanted to hear. People wanted to hear, like, it's impossible that Americans just voted for Donald Trump. It must have been a trick. We found the trick. And, like, that was pretty depressing. Well, but hold on. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I, part of the reason why I switched out of writing, it drove me literally fucking crazy trying to get the, take the other side of that and explain that Cambridge Analytica was completely bullshit, which was absolutely obvious to anyone who, I have an ad tech background for those who don't know my background. I was the first targeting PM at Facebook. I know the targeting world at Facebook very well leading into the 2016 election. It was obviously on the face of it, total 
and complete bullshit the entire story. And I just drove myself crazy trying to write that story. No one gave a shit about it. No one ever yeah, no one listened. shit. Yeah. No one listened. No one gave a shit about it. Carol, whatever her name is in Britain, still like, you know, hasn't returned any of her honors for, for reporting on this utterly bullshit story. But then I have, I mean, and I've confronted other, I mean, confronted, I've asked other journalists, Kevin Roos, a few friends we have in common. It's like, dude, you got it totally wrong. How could you have gotten it totally wrong? Are you going to like retract it? Are you going to take it back? It's like, well, that's what the reporting said at the time. Or that was the popular story. So we fed it to the, whatever it was, the audience. And I, I don't know, to me, it seems like not shoulder. Yeah, for what, I mean, for what it's worth, there are probably other things. I'm sure there are things about who we got wrong. We got that one right. Cause, and, and I totally agree with you. And I found it incredibly dispiriting that no one cared at all. And I think it, it was, I mean, there were these, these sort of just, I mean, it was sort of social media plus cable news driving these narratives that if a story did not like, this is like, you know, just, it just, the news that hit was the news that the, the, and the news, I mean, ultimately, the news anyone wanted to read or consume was news that confirmed their views. Right. Which at the end of the day, I mean, to get, again, super meta and media studies about it, at the end of the day, people don't actually pay for news. They don't actually want reality. They want, they want their own views of the world up and back at them. The only people who actually pay for news are people whose livelihoods depend on it, which is why the first newspapers were actually shipping gazettes in London or Northern Italy, going back to the 17th century, in which you, you needed to know, right? Which is why the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg have done very well, right? Like they haven't had a media crisis. Yeah, the information. And, yeah, right. But when it comes to the sort of the everyday man, they, they don't necessarily want detailed information about tech, for example. Although I, although I do think a certain brand, tech journalism used to be a lot more gadgety, a lot more like nerdy, uh, you know, reviewing stuff. I, I, I think actually people do like tech and they do like cool new shiny consumer products. I'm not quite sure why tech journalism totally abandoned, like the Walt Mossberg, like device review thing actually was a big deal and, and, and was well, device. I mean, tech also as a category sort of exploded into the entire economy, right? Like that was this, that happened at the same time. And is part of it, I think like gadgets are boring now, actually, mostly like the, you're the new, the newest iPhone isn't particularly interestingly different, but things, you know, but the way target is running its logistics network now is like super interesting for somebody, but is that a tech story? Like who covers that? And I think it's sort of the category of tech journalism sort of lost it's sort of footing and and politics was the hot thing and a lot of people ran toward it. I don't know. I mean, I think there's lots of blame to go around. I'm sort of hopeful that maybe that moment has passed. Okay, maybe there's a naive belief, but part of the reason why I wrote Chaos Monkeys and why I actually entertained writing for Wired for a couple of years after that, which in, in retrospect was probably completely a mistake, was the thought that like, no, these tech journalists aren't getting it. They've never been on the inside. They've never built anything, right? They've never actually understood what it is to like ship a new product to an audience of a billion people inside Facebook. So let's give them the insider view, you know, come what may and change the tenor of the debate. I think most tech journalism 2016, 2020 did society a total disservice and actually confused people more. We are dumber about technology now, thanks to that four years of journalism than before. And I, I've yet to see anyone take a makeable for it, right? Well, here I am, I, I, you know. Well, I, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not, with you. I agree with I, you, but I'm, but I'm trying to think of a really good example where I wrote something really dumb to give you. I mean, I do, I think the, um, well, the I Uber mean, thing, if you, you know, want to start you, somewhere, Ben, the, you should, you should have respected the fucking off the record nature of the dinner and not fucking exploded the full oh, offhand comment. A, I mean, do you Michael. want me to tell that story? Cause it's a great story, <laughs> which is that, I mean, we don't have to get into details and I'm sure, you know, I don't mean to rub. I've heard, I, I, I've heard, I've read one of the things that was, but there is a thing that, in tech that um of not understanding of genuinely misunderstanding journalist motives and things like that and i don't you know these are not games i have any skin and i've covered politics my whole career but somebody says something to you and it, and it 
just happened not to be off the record because nobody had told me it was off the record, which was obviously a mistake and very, somebody's mistake. You then can, if, and you want to get a reporter to not write something or to put it in, you can say, hey, I never said it. Or you can say that was off the record, but you can't start by saying that was off the record. And when that doesn't work, then turn around and be like, actually, I never said it. You can see the logical issue with that. No, Ben, I, I, I get it. And that's the standard response. But I, I've been in many off the record events. I was in one this week that's tech focused. Any, any media professional understands the rules of engagement when they're in any event and whether that person is callable or not. And the fact that you or somebody else didn't is, is a lapse in professional judgment. Sorry, I hate to pillar oh, you for I, it's 10 I years could old, not but disagree I just, with you more. This is fun. But like, like, who do you think I work for? Like I, my, my responsibility is to the audience, not to you. And if you right now are to say something totally nuts that is interesting and revelatory, of course I'm going to print it unless I have explicitly agreed not to. And if I have explicitly agreed not to, I'm going to keep my word. But I'm not going to keep your secrets for you out of some sense of solidarity with you. My sol- that's not a, the way my responsibility oh, well, obvi- Okay, Ben, but no one, this is for a, this is for a podcast. No Fortunately, one we're all on the record. record. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I know. But you, but you see what I mean? Like my sort of, my obligation isn't to the sources, it's to the, it's to the audience. And so in an ambiguous situation or in a situation where I haven't made some explicit agreement, like there's not some implicit obligation to a company. So that's my, this is for good though. This is something maybe where we disagree a bit. Well, well, where I would disagree, where I would disagree is that you're wrapping yourself in the sort of flag of Woodward and Bernstein and allegiance to an audience. No, I am I think, so not. Well, you, you, you literally just did. You, you said that. Well, I, I don't I, think that's know, always I, the most socially constructive thing in the world. I don't. I'm not like I don't think journalists should be regarded as some priesthood, but that is the job. Okay. I, I, I do think a, I, I do think a lot of journalists consider themselves their part of some clarity, and that that yes, that duty I agree. to the and audience. That, I find that incredibly what, annoying. Uh, but but you you yourself just said that's you just didn't the understand. job. Like who do you think I work for? Like I don't work for the company I cover. I work for the people I write for. Though you know that creates its own weirdness, but that is the reality. I mean, you write for the traffic stats of the company that pays you, which is what you described in the book, right? And I think well, I'm, that didn't entirely work out. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing you're pointing at is that the 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 tech and the media class seemed to diverge in a significant way where they used to be much more intertwined and where the people who are doing the device reviews or the company reviews today are people like Lenny Richitsky or people like Packy McCormick who don't even consider themselves journalists in fact and so I, I wonder if that's where just everything is going where the people who have expertise and who are covering these fields are don't consider themselves journalists they are like within the industries that they cover and it's it's almost like trade media it's it's kind of just this different thing where this ways it is sort of a new trade media that always was in between and had a kind of closer relationship but also the you know people like backy like good ones like feel like they need to be honest to their audience that they should you know they're not they're not like paid shills they're not lying they're doing i mean i I don't think that like capital you have to there's some like capital j definition of journalism particularly there's definitely a difference it's funny ironically i'm sitting next to the offices of signal fire which is a venture capitalist uh, where Josh Constein, probably the, the last serious guy who wrote for TechCrunch, wrote, and he used to cover Facebook when I was at Facebook, and we used to have interesting conversations. And you're right, it used to be a slightly cozier relationship. How I imagine political reporting is in which, yeah, you're constantly schmoozing and socializing with a lot of the journalists, but you're kind of on the same team, sort of. It's obviously an iterated game. No one's looking to screw anyone on this particular quote because they know that like a month later, they're just going to get frozen out. And at some point, that just became a lot more hard-edged. And ruthless, and then the, the journalists, frankly, just got frozen out, and that's why nobody, nobody in journalism has actually landed a punch in the past several years, as far as I know. Nothing's actually been leaked, or nothing interesting's actually happened because they're not 
they're not they're not in those parties anymore. I don't I don't run into journalists at that parties anymore at all. That's and, interesting. Um, yeah. It's just com- it's just completely diverged those two worlds. And before they weren't that different actually. They were actually much more overlapping and much more social. It was also true that like these tech companies, I mean, they just did not have the kind of power. The executives were not the most powerful people in the world. The, like, I think this is, I mean, this is something that, I mean, in, in our smaller world, like, I think that like one of the things that Gawker really screwed up was they were like these fun outsiders who were throwing spitballs at these huge, powerful institutions. And then at some point, like the institutions sort of get pretty weak and Gawker is pretty strong and you can't, and doesn't perceive that it's like now a bully, basically. And I think that to some degree was probably true in the tech world too, that like, it's a weird mind fuck to go from being a startup guy struggling for survival to one of the richest people in the world with immense power. And I think that like that is part of it. And 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 you feel so personally attacked when like ultimately like your small decisions have vast social consequences and are pretty legitimate subjects of coverage. And I think that's one of the dynamics that was going on here, not the only one. I don't know. I think the power of tech is kind of overstated a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, that <laughs> too. This- that too. But like, I mean, if you want to talk about like sort of interesting Facebook coverage, like they made decisions, technical decisions in the, and this is in the book, like in, and I'm curious what you think about this, like in 2018, they're trying to get rid of awful political content that is just like, like Hillary Clinton has a body double share and without reading or like, and it's like this deranged garbage. And so they introduced this thing called meaningful social interaction and then like what we saw at BuzzFeed with Jonah, like the memo that's in the book is like the stuff that gets the most meaningful social action, social interaction is stuff that can be misinterpreted as being super racist. And like, I'm sure that is not what Facebook intended, but that's obviously news and interesting. I mean, I, I wasn't there during that time, but I was there much earlier where, I mean, you're right. There, there are micro tweaks and micro things that happen inside Facebook. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I think is hard for outsiders to convey, it's what it's like to be even like a relatively mid-level or junior product manager and like have a dashboard and all the numbers are in the billions. And even though you're one smart, small part of the Facebook empire, you're often a lot to the downstream impacts of that. And so some micro tweak to the algorithm will, I don't know, there's almost a chaos theory thing, like completely royal the political process in some small country somewhere. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so I you mean, see why ju- people yeah. get upset. Yeah, but I mean, but, but Google does that too with its ranking algorithm. Somehow the, the, the perception is different. Here, here's my take on that. I always thought that the the original mistake, and I think I said this more than once in interviews, I remember after, it was like Zuck's second post after the Trump victory, when everyone was like shell-shocked at the upset. And he posted a thing where he hinted that, oh yeah, Facebook would be working with um, whatever, Snopes or something to actually do like fact-checking on Facebook. And like when I was there, like kind of the gospel was, no, 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 no. We, we don't put our finger on the scales. I mean, there's obviously content guidelines around pornography and violence and all that, but everyone agrees on that. Like nobody actually seriously, no one who's not an idiot, like disagrees on that. It's more like content that, like you said as well, it's kind of garbagey content and like ridiculous and tabloidy. Should Facebook actually step in and say, actually, this is untrue. And I've always thought that that was a mistake and that there would be no way to thread that needle in a large multifarious democracy in which there's various versions of truth. There's no way that Facebook would ever be able to do it. And, and I have to say, in retrospect, it's true. I mean, do we, this whole content moderation industrial complex has spun up. Do we feel safer now? Do we, do we feel things are more truthy now than they were before? Has that been a success? Four years of basically pushing for some form of social media censorship. Are things better now than they were before? I'd say no, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I've always been a very 
skeptical of sort of of professional fact checking because like journalism is fact check. I mean, it's, but I mean, although where exactly you draw the line, as you say, there is stuff you don't want on there and you kind of see it and you know, you don't want it on your platform. Alex Jones. I mean, there's, there are, there are places where you're going to be like, ah, we got to find some way to knock this off. I mean, I think the, the, um, to me, the interesting stuff, the most interesting recent version of that is, um, is the anti-vax stuff, which Zuckerberg went in very hard on. I mean, public health like feels like the place where, okay, like if we can just like, we'll ask the doctors, they'll tell us what's true, what's false, and which turned out to be a mess during the pandemic. But also I asked us, us an academic who spent a bunch of time researching um, content moderation and a very kind of, I think, pro basically, like Twitter. And if you, in the Twitter leaks, one of the things you see in the Twitter leaks is that they feel like they are making life and death decisions that are incredibly high stakes of whether to throw Alex Berenson off Twitter. And Alex Berenson also thinks that this is incredibly high stakes. And these Twitter account moderation decisions are going to determine whether people live or die. But then you see, and so they were very aggressive about getting anti-vaccine voices, who, by the way, I think are totally deranged off Twitter, um, most of them. And then you look like, how are we doing? Like, how's the vaccination rate in the US? Like pretty low. And I asked, and so I asked the academic who'd been studying kind of this question of like media to actual action in the world, like on balance, do you think that kind of moderation like made more people get vaccinated or was there a backlash? And he was like, well, on balance, if you look at all the numbers, like basically came out in the wash and it's the same as if they hadn't done it. Like, (laughs) right. I mean, the reality is that Galileo would have been content moderated, right? In some sense, like the the whole point of the first amendment. He was, I believe. You're right. He was, (laughs) right. That you have some underdog that, that, you know, a lot of it's crazy, but there's actually one guy who's right. Uh, and, and to be clear, you mentioned the fact-checking thing. It's funny, and I think this is one this is one place where I think maybe tech doesn't understand how media works. Um, I've been fact-checked. Like at Wired, Condé Nast had the budget to actually do fact-checking. Like one of my actual re- on-the-ground reporting, I was in Cuba in 2017 reporting on how the underground internet works. I was reporting illegally on the visa, all on the hush-hush, but they actually sent somebody to Cuba to like check my sources and make sure I had I remember that piece. All- that was a great yeah, piece. Right, because the whole story was kind of wild. They actually sent somebody to Cuba, which again, totally legal, expensive, whatever. And so fact-checking, I think, does have some value, but it's kind of like peer review in academia. It's it's become this like appeal to authority that if you don't have it, therefore it's garbage, and then it gets completely manipulated. And I think fact-checking is important and makes sure that you don't have a you know com- completely fraudulent sort of situation, but it doesn't actually give you capital T truth to the extent that's even possible. And so, yeah, and, uh, this, know, and the internet fact checking that we're talking about specifically involved sort of fi- employ just just as a matter of reality, employing a bunch of like very junior people to try to correct what were often very complicated stories. And you know, a lot of I do think it's sort of misunderstanding of politics, the notion that you could sort of fact check your way to agreement. Like ultimately, when somebody was sharing a story saying that Obama was born in Kenya if you'd ask them like, okay, would you bet a thousand dollars on that? They probably wouldn't. Like they were saying, <laughs> I hate this guy and I'm racist. They weren't saying Obama was born in Kenya. They, like a lot of political statements aren't really factual statements. and You're not going to like fact check them out of it. it they're actually kind of trolling you and they're and enjoy, but you know, it's, and I think it was sort of a very like intellectualized journalist idea of how politics works that like, if only these people got out of their false consciousness and, understood that like whatever they would they would not vote for donald trump anymore and i don't i think people really like donald trump that's why they voted it's funny you mentioned false consciousness a very marxist tape but of course jenna Preddy's original thesis was on marxism (laughs) in media which is interesting i'm just using words i don't know what they mean (laughs) (laughs) oh i don't yeah i don't think anyone knows what they mean i I do have a question um for you ben because you've been an observer and a player inside media for such a long time 
I'm curious. So, so if you were to ask me, and in fact, this is what my stalled second book idea that I eventually bailed on and just went back to tech to do, but it's a lot of this Marshall McLuhan and Walter Ong textual versus oral culture and oral versus textual ways of knowing, which sounds very postmodern and, and, and media studies, but it does have implications for the internet. I think in the internet, we're going back to a sort of oral way of existing, even though Twitter is textual, you know, the, the message is the media in kind, of, in kind of a way. And the point is that it's all very word of mouth. It's very based on the, the individual who states a thing. There's no, there's no objective truth, et cetera. The other thing that I think is, that's exciting that's going on is that obviously our entire realities are being refracted through these prisms. And the, you know, to me, the key thing, and again, I also made this point, this is part of the bullshit that came out in 2016, oh, the algorithm. Journalists are always talking about the algorithm. Well, guess what? WhatsApp has no algorithm, right? And WhatsApp has actually caused all sorts of political turmoil in Brazil and India. It's really the fact that you telepathically connect to the entire world to this device and give it to everybody. That's the real problem, right? And that's never going away. There's no Luddism that's going to like rewind this clock or put the genie back in the bottle. So it, it is the case that in some sense, like the organizing principle of society used to be geographics, right? And like, I remember as a kid, like you probably are my age, roughly Ben, you grew up in the analog era where you got your local paper, right? And reading the New York Times that you weren't in New York was hard to read and you had your regional truth. And people used to say all sorts of outrageous things. It's funny, people think, oh, there's so much misinformation now. Dude, talk to a grandpa in, you know, in, in the 90s, what they thought about the world or the, or the Jews or the this or the that, right? There's all sorts of stupidity and misinformation. We're just seeing more of it now, right? So with all that context, what do you think is the future of media? Because again, it's obviously heavily fragmented, right? You, you and I, Ben, although we've, I don't think we've actually ever physically met, are obviously part of the same class and the same group and network, right? Even though we're actually separated by almost 3,000 miles now. And clearly there's a different way of knowing the institutions and yourself detailed in the book that traditionally mediated life and made life possible in a nation of 300 million media, government, et cetera, are getting eroded and the faith is kind of going away. Everything, I mean, I'm working in a, decentralized web three world in which by design, there is no center, there is no institution that actually governs and mediates things. Where do you see this going? Is it more of the same? Is it more substacks? I, how do you, I mean, you've, you've started a new venture, so you obviously have some like very real theory in the world. That yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and yeah, right. I'm, it's, you know, obviously, you know, money where my mouth is at semaphore to some degree, but I think with the thing you said, I think it's very splintered. I mean, I think we're going to a world where people are reading, listening to, connected, you know, people mostly more than institutions and not necessarily like you may not really know what the, your neighbor is listening to. And maybe that's good. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's, and I think when it comes to like national elections, there will be big public debates and, you know, I don't, it's not like the New York times going away and has, you know, or, or that NPR, that sort of big national institutions are going to vanish. But I do think there's going to be a lot more smaller stuff and a lot of influential smaller stuff that's sort of operating underneath the surface and is not in constant contact with its enemies. Like I do think the worst thing about Twitter is it's just this machine for finding the stupidest take that your enemies have and, and surfacing it to you as though it, that's really the thing. It's like this, it's just like this, a machine for spitting out straw men and finding just like the absolute dumbest person you disagree with. And I think that, I don't know, I think people are going to sort of disengage from these arguments in a way that maybe is healthy right now. Like it does not seem like these are very productive public arguments. I would actually turn around what you just said, Ben, and say Twitter makes you believe that the stupidest person could possibly, the stupidest, most immoral person could possibly believe actually exists, right? And that that's like a thing in the world that we need to form a crusade against. And it's some dude with 30 followers who tweeted some stupid thing. Yeah. And it really, and, it really and doesn't so exist, much, but. Yeah. And so much of the right and the left right now are focused on these, they've managed to find lunatic extremists on Twitter to argue with. 
are, are you sympathetic, uh, uh, Ben, with the one part of the Balaji critique, which is that one of the reason why um, the media became so hostile towards Facebook is that they were, in fact, competitors. And, and you should look at both of them as rational actors who are trying to, you know, build, maximize their businesses. And if they're competing for the same ad dollars, of course, they're going to say negative, negative things about, about each other. And thus, there should be a separation where you don't, you know, do you agree with that? I mean, if I think if you read my book, you will not see it being totally full of like super rational actors. But that said, yes, that surely that's true. And I think the, the place it's truest is News Corp. I mean, I think like the, if you want to see a company where the CEO and chairman is like, all right, we have a business dispute with these people. Let's like kick the crap out of them until they cave. Look at the Wall Street Journal and Fox News's coverage of YouTube. Like there is a very good example of that really in action. But I, journalists are like a guild like having managed a lot of journalists, like you can't, like if the boss is like, we have a business dispute with these people, go kill them. Like you can't make them do anything. And their motives are much more, are much more. it is like they're some weird guild who is just going to do what they're going to do. And they don't totally work for you. They kind of work for the guild. And so I think, I do think that's actually, there is a truth to it. And the sense that like Facebook is eating our lunch, we have to kill them was in the mix. I mean, certainly not at BuzzFeed, where we were very closely allied with Facebook and still wrote a lot of tough stuff about them, because that's sort of what journalists thought at times, although I don't think we went overboard, certainly on the Cambridge Analytica stuff. But, you know, they were the big reporting target and everybody was competing to write about them. And I think that stuff is much, that sort of irrational stuff is sort of more explanatory power than a sort of structural conspiracy, although that was part of it. One quick anecdote I'll share before Antonio goes is I remember we were at a dinner with Balaji before COVID, um, a big dinner with our with our crew, and he was saying, "Hey, New York Times is evil," or or some version of that. And we were like, "Oh, come on, get out of here!" You know, maybe they make some mistakes, but it's the New York Times. Come on, they're not so bad. And then a few years later, that same statement didn't seem as crazy anymore, uh, just because of where things have have diverged. And you know, people share all these graphs of how different language in New York Times, like you know, uh, whether it's their uh, coverage of Facebook or, or the coverage of certain like political, uh, you know, activist topics kind of started to, to ramp up. And it's just interesting how um, Balaji was considered crazy at one point. And, and he's considered I crazy. Still, I still think he's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, I, I, I do think each has overthought the other and developed these big theoretical models, journalists of how tech works and tech of how journalism works. And I do think the journalistic model of tech has fallen apart in various ways. But if you want to see how poorly the technologist model of journalism works look at just look at the like, musk just like put it into action his theory of how people were motivated and it just like they're not selling a lot of blue checks like it was not correct they're not selling blue checks because he made the mistake of democratizing it that anyone could get one and then try charging for it right if he had just made it be an elite no. batch to begin with no i don't think so but w what about the Sachs or musk critique that journalists kind of represent this class of the managerial elite that does not speak for the rest of the country, but kind of, you know, takes the air of, you know, the impartial referee. Yeah, sure. There's something to that. I think a lot of people are basically trying to do their job. I, I just think that, like, there are these big ideological critiques that often don't survive contact with reality. And because these two sides have totally stopped talking to each other, no longer have contact with reality. I mean, what I, what I would say is, I, 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 on my subsite, I did a piece called, you know, There Is No Them. As someone, again, who straddled these divides and knows players from both sides, I think both kind of character the other and, and assume that, and this happens with everyone. You assume that there's this monolithic thing that has some like high level agency that actually has like a single threaded thought <laughs> through its head that's doing the thing when it's actually a lot more diverse than that. And if you look in tech, like the startup entrepreneur, like me and the small startup is very different than the CEO of Microsoft, which is very different than the middle manager inside Facebook. And these are all like our interests actually don't align. 
to be honest. And if you were to look inside the media world, you'd, you'd also find similar differences. Th that said, it does seem odd, and this is bigger than just like the New York Times or Tech Media, that you know, there is a certain social elite in the US, and, and for some reason, most elite institutions have converged on politics that are like this narrow with each other. And that, that's a bigger conversation that's more than just tech and media. But there is something to that. And it's, it's bigger than the New York Times, but it, it is true. And I, I think where you, where you see a glitch in the matrix is where an elite institution gets captured by someone who doesn't share it. So Elon taking over Twitter, I had a viral tweet go crazy that like much of the entrepreneurial class doesn't believe in the sort of you know professional managerial class thought. In fact, they're quite counter to it. And, and, you, and you see that divide between startup founders and the HR department, for example, right? And so when you do have an elite institution, which Twitter kind of is, captured by someone who doesn't go along with the rating narrative, then there's this massive freakout about it, right? And I'm just citing that as evidence of where, where there is such a matrix and like you're seeing the glitch in it. Would you agree with that, Ben, or would, would you not agree with it? Um, I mean, I do agree that Twitter was sort of this home for the for kind of political elite conversation. But it was also, I mean, I don't know, I think it was sort of a social network where people hung out with their friends and the new owner comes in and makes clear that he doesn't like them. And so they and their friends are mostly going to go somewhere else. And I don't know, I'm not sure that like, I mean, I, I guess I think it's a probably another hour. <laughs> like, I agree, I agree with parts and disagree with parts. But I do think it sometimes gets pretty theoretical. And like, you know, all the journalists hate each other and disagree with each other, too. Antonio, I, I know you have to go in a minute, but before you do, can you quickly, like, what would you say is the, the main worldview difference between take like the Kevin Roos, the Casey's, the Eric Newcomers and the you and the Mike Solana or whoever, like, how would you, there's so much in common or, you know, but like, what is the, what would you say is the big worldview difference that leads you to come to different conclusions? I don't know if it's worldview. I think it's, it's life experience. It's, 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 again, it's very different. And, and you're focusing on the journalists, but I'd say the same is true of, I don't know. Rene Duresta, who is big into the whole content moderation thing, or even Zane, or even now a lot of the AGI commentariat, there's a difference between those who, in some sense, build and do the thing, and those who talk about the thing. And to be clear, I, I don't know that you necessarily have to always do the thing to talk about the thing. And in some sense, you should have a voice that's not the thing to kind of have an outside perspective. But that, if, if you look at it, like, what's the one thing, what's the root of the decision tree between the two sets of people you identified and I added a few people? The people who didn't get the tech thing were never sitting in the seat that like I'm sitting in now or sat in at Facebook, staring at a dashboard with a team of engineers trying to build a real product in the real world with all the limitations that implies. None of them had ever done it. Right. And that's that's the problem. I mean, it is. I do. It's interesting you mentioned AGI and AI because, I mean, Reed Albergati, who's, who's our tech editor and I have like like it feels like a different moment, partly because. A lot of the people who have the most critical, extreme, anti what you would sort of call anti-tech in another view are very much the practitioners, right? Are people are like, are the people who put the money into, I mean, or at least the people who put the most money into, like Jan Talon and Elon Musk are probably, what, two of the most important investors in AI and the strongest anti-AI voices. And I think a, there is a lot of journalism that is hysterical about it, but also a lot that is curious. And I think it, I think actually the polarities are kind of mixed up in a hopefully kind of nice way. Antonio, I think it's that you, you th I think part of what you said is, is accurate, although I do think there's some builders who are, you know, considered anti-tech and that's the way. I, I think it's that you don't think tech needs to be held accountable by this kind of outsider entity. And in fact, the outsider entity might need to, you know, be held accountable as well. Whereas other people, I think, think that there needs to be this external um, sort of, you know, entity or set of entities that holds these in, you know, powerful tech companies accountable. That, that, so to be clear, that's, that's not true. And, and, and I've, in, in private conversations with tech people, I've often said, you, know, you realize tech gets it wrong a lot of the time. Like 
take the Cambridge Analytica story. So the whole story was bullshit. That said, what could you critique Facebook about? It was loose about its platform data policies. Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, they shouldn't have been given the data. platform to a bunch of criminals, obviously. <laughs> like, yes. Right. And 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 I and I've had conversations with people at Facebook about it, and they agree, yeah, that, that part we fucked up. We let we let like the the horse get out of the barn door or whatever, and we should have shut it earlier. And that, I mean, look, I, I critique Facebook in my in the own book when I work there. So I, I think there's actual tech piece you can make about that. And so I, I think but a, a lot of this accountability journalism is really just a masquerade for well, we're just going to be anti-tech and ride this anti-tech hobby horse forever. And I think, I think part of the media difference is that tech definitely has a very positive builder mentality, which again, and again, I'm the first one to say that there's these necessary delusions that you need to have in Silicon Valley. And a lot of them are delusions, frankly, about how the world works to build your thing. But I you, mean, you, you, you think need you it. need delusions in Silicon Valley. Think about the delusions <laughs> you need to do media startups. Right. No, no. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they're, they're right. And, and so I, I'm the first one to jump on the, the hobby horse of like, why is tech fucking up in this way and the other way? I just... It just, it's weird to me that it, I, the journalists, it, they don't land the punches that I think they should be landing, which obviously is a totally narcissistic thing to say, but. Antonio, do you believe in the referee? No, there, there's no, no, there's no referee, no. I, I think that's a big difference. I think some people believe that they're, uh, you know, Eric Newcomer used the word referee. There, there should be a referee out, outside of tech that, that adjudicates. I think that's one about no, noteworthy difference. I, in theory, that sounds great, but you're using a, a sports metaphor where there actually is a referee. I don't trust the government, how regulation actually comes out of the sausage machine. I don't actually trust that with making the world better because every piece of tech regulation I've seen has been the seed for tech reg regulatory arbitrage and, and a bunch of, I mean, look at fucking GDPR, which I could rail on forever, right? Like we had to pay for, anyhow, long story, but to comply with GDPR obviously privileges the incumbents, penalizes startups and does nothing for actual user privacy. And would you say so, the same thing for cult cultural regulation that is journalism? Well, I don't know if I'd call that cultural regulation. I, I that, it, It's funny. On the contrary, Ben, one thing I disagree with BuzzFeed, I'm a total cultural elitist. And if we could somehow rewind the clock to like the Atlantic circa 1996, that would be ideal, frankly. I think so, <laughs> so, so I we're, we're way higher brow at Semaphore. <laughs> I hope you I hope you're enjoying it. But I personally am kind of an anti-elitist. So, you know, I miss the, uh, I miss, that, I miss the cat okay. pictures. So one more question. And I'm willing to, to, to yeah. not go to my meeting to ask this question because <laughs> it, it's, 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 it came up recently in a piece by Alana Newhouse at Tablet, which is a magazine I, I, I've written for. And I, I find kind of interesting, an interesting independent voice, kind of like Semaphore and Compact and a few other, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going actually out there. I'm, I'm not, the, I don't think it's all just subsects. Um, but one thing she cited, and I've seen this myself, is that the real divide actually is between institutionalists and anti-institutionalists. And if you, if you talk, and that, and I don't mean that in the sense of like anarchy, there can't be institutions. I'm saying, yeah, do you believe there's centrist institutions worth, you know, saving, or is it actually new can pay, forget it? Which, which are you then? Which? So my view on this has totally changed. Like, I, and and writing the book changed it a little. Like, I feel like I came up seeing these like totally kind of hollow, shaky, discredited posts, particularly by the Iraq War coverage, you know, media institutions, and thought. Like, let's like burn them down and create new, better things that are more populist in some sense. I now think like, and, and, and I don't think this is particularly limited to media, like governments and, you know, government institutions are in shaky situations. All sorts of institutions are religious institutions. I now think like, huh, would be a stable and happier society if we had trusted institutions. Seems like countries that function better have trusted institutions, like in media, in other areas, like probably be good to build and try to like buttress institutions. So I actually flipped on that. And I do think the reason that like this viral era of media so suited the populist right and the populist left, which just wasn't as successful, was that it was like the the thing it was best at was burning up institutions. So you're an institutionalist in the end, Ben. You've, you've I am now an institutionalist. I'm old. 
I'm old, so now also, I'm you also have been yeah. you also run a He's company, starting a new right? company. So now yeah, yeah, let's say I I just posted a meme, just a random joke meme of like, you know, payday when you're an employee and it's like happy, happy, and then payday when you're like a founder or like management and it's like the saddest day of the week. So Ben, now you're you're on that side of it. You're on you're on the capital yeah, side of the balance sheet now. You're not you're not labor anymore, Ben. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, I, so thus, thus I'm an institutionalist, but I don't even see like, like BuzzFeed had like an anti-institutionalist mission in some sense and Semaphore really doesn't. And that is a change for me. I'm sorry. Don't throw <laughs> me off your podcast. <laughs> we, we've yet to ever, ha- we've yet to throw anybody off the podcast, but despite there being sparks flying occasionally. Um, <laughs> Any last words from, from your end, Antonio? I'm going to keep Ben on for maybe 10 more minutes. Well, what's going to go on during those 10 minutes, Eric? What, what, what's the, We're going to talk about you, thing? Antonio. I hope I'm, no, not, I'm, not, I'm not interesting enough anymore to, to talk about. He never listens to the last time. You know, the last 10 minutes of this podcast is always Eric talking about you. Do you not listen? <laughs> I, 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 I never watch my own media. Ben, I often joke, I'm not really a narcissist. I just play one on the internet. I, and that's why it drove me crazy. I actually don't watch my own media, though, ever. So. That seems wise. So, Ben, you, you've said that um, in interviews that you put aside the blue check thing, you, you don't you don't understand or agree with sort of Elon's categorization of like the, the sort of class, you know, uh, the, the, you see it as some sort of like reverse class warfare where billionaires or big CEOs are kind of railing on their employees for being activists or something. What do you make, make of the kind of sort of evolving class dynamics between, you know, the Brian Armstrong's of the world or, you know, CEOs kind of speaking up against their employees and saying, Hey, we're going to do things differently here. I don't really see it as a class dynamic. I think across, I mean, one of the things social media did was like shake the balance between employees and their employers. And obviously employers from meatpacking to tech to media are reasserting themselves and being like, no, you work for me. And if you don't want to leave, Um, I mean, I think a tight labor market makes that harder. But but I think with the current in tech in particular, the sort of the one thing that Elon clearly accomplished was proving to everybody that you didn't need as many product managers as you thought. And so I think that has given these guys leverage, but I think that's, that's like a reversion to norms. Like the, the notion that employees could just go tweet that their employers should fuck themselves was probably not a long-term tenable situation. Ben, I, I completely object. Product managers absolutely critical to the running. They are the heroes <laughs> of our era. <laughs> just maybe slightly fewer, just the really brilliant ones. You, you, ben, you saw the videos of the TikTok or LinkedIn product managers. Uh, like, just, so just, amazing. Yeah. Day in the life. Yeah. The um, disinformation, like, does, is that always just code for whatever benefits the Democratic Party? Or like in terms of the last four years, like, are there any? It is not. A, I don't like the word disinformation. Like, I think just calling things lies or falsehoods is fine. And, it, and there was sort of an industry that developed. I mean, that said, the industry, like when we were first covering it in 2015, I mean, it was amazing how these kids in Macedonia had hacked Facebook essentially and figured out that they could get tons and tons of views by like tapping into the lizard brain of old Americans and telling them false stories that they wanted to hear. Like whatever, you don't even need to call it fake news. Like that was a real phenomenon that was interesting and good that it got stamped out. And similarly, like Russian propaganda efforts and also in America, all sorts. I mean, there is a real thing of governments spreading lies on the internet and, and in leaflets and books and whatever to change people's minds. Again, I do think that the sort of the problem with like creating, and I've had this argument with a lot of people, like the problem with creating this whole rubric around disinformation is pretty soon you've got a bunch of criteria for what makes something disinformation and being true isn't one of them. Like, you know, like being false is no longer one of them and something can be 
both true and disinformation. Like that was where to me, things got totally off the rails. Yeah. And it was also this broader thing of like, we need to have stronger censorship to defend democracy or something like, um, that, that always just felt a little strange. Yeah, but also politics aren't symmetrical. Like, does Donald Trump and the, does that sort of Trump movement and actually the sort of similar populist right-wing movements in other countries, like, lie and sort of act in transgressive ways more as part of their politics? Like, yeah, totally. That is part of their political approach. And so it's not like everything's a mirror image and people were wrong to be upset about stuff. But I do think the kind of, like, academic science of disinformation freaks me out. Well, hold on. But one, but one, one comment on that, though. Like, but one of the weird things that's happened recently, right? is that journalists arguably have come out in favor of, of content moderation and, and moderating platforms more. And it's a little strange because, again, we're both old enough to remember when, like, the PEN America Writers Guild or whatever, and journalists by and large, stood by, or I mean, not to even mention the ACLU with the Nazis in Skokie, and, you know, we can go back many years, that there was a different attitude around that. And typically, the, there, there would have been more full-throat defenses of, of the First Amendment, I think, in the past than we see now from, from journalists. Oh, yeah, that's obviously a big cultural shift. I mean, I don't think it's just journalists. I think it's... How do you explain it? I don't know. I mean, I find the whole thing pretty dispiriting, like mostly like I do think, I mean, I do think there are specific things where like if you, I do think that like, like I have such a thick skin because I've been on the internet a long time and like Andrew Sullivan just wrote like a savage review of my book and I loved it for instance. But like actually for normal people being told on the internet to kill yourself 50 times a day, like that's not acceptable. You should moderate that. Like how real harassment, like I don't, I'm actually, maybe because like I'm a white guy partly and maybe because I just have probably just been on the internet too long, I'm totally immune to it and I don't mind and I think it's funny. You cannot actually expect normal people on a platform to think it's funny when strangers are being horrible to them in a really nasty personal way. And I think it's totally, totally appropriate for platforms to moderate that and most good ones do. I mean, Reddit is probably the best example of like a really well-functioning platform that sort of navigates this stuff in a very high touch, personal, careful way with mods who know what they're doing and not a kind of like top down quasi governmental regulatory structure. But like, I don't know. So I think a lot of that cotton moderation stuff is fine, but I just think there was this moment when it seemed, when people came to believe that like bad tweets were what got Trump elected and if only you could stop them. And that to me went a bit overboard. Here's my theory about that. I think it's, it's, it's less about the realities and the uglinesses of online harassment, which are very real. I think it's more the people who cling to First Amendment are the people who are out of power, right? Because in some sense, the First Amendment exists to speak against power. Otherwise, it's not free speech, right? And who clings to the First Amendment at the moment? Who is clinging to the First Amendment? Remind me. The, the, I can't find well, anybody the, the clinging right, to the First the, Amendment. The, oh, the, uh, are they? The right. Yes. Ron DeSantis is currently about to get like bludgeoned to death in a Florida court because he has like zero interest in the first, in a very core first amendment. Well, principle. well, he's the, he's the new, well, there's a whole different show, which I'd be happy to do, but that, that, cause I've thought about it a lot. That's the new right. And the new right does actually. Right. What's left, politics. what's left of the, right. You're right. What's left of the vestigial old right cares. And, but I don't know what, what actually I find kind of dispiriting is I feel like I love the story about the ACL defending us, ACLU defending the Nazis right to March in Skokie. But there was never a thing where the ACLU was also marching and like carrying the swastika sign and being like, this is awesome. Like it was very clear that like, we hate you and you have a right to say it. And I almost never see that expressed anymore. Like what I see is people being like, oh, these vaccine skeptics are actually like, they're raising good questions as opposed to these people are fucking maniacs. They're going to get people killed and they have a right to do it, which to me is a much more principled position and is my position. Okay. And everybody wants to like sympathize with and get in with 
this the people saying insane toxic stuff who they want to defend and, I, and actually the one group i think is pretty good is fire if you ever bounce off them the fetish for like they defend crazy people who they hate and do not embrace like god bless yeah i think i've spoken on one of their events you know fire is one of the few i think there's less principle behavior in general our ability to actually believe in an abstract principle despite politics has diminished but maybe i'm just oh, maybe there never was much fire. maybe there never was much that, that's that's why i'm being that's why i'm being cynical and <laughs> saying Kids these kids these days don't remember, but the U.S. used to be pretty conservative, right? And like you had, you know, the Bush administration and John Yoo, who wrote the torture memos, was a professor at Berkeley when I was a grad student there. And like there was no cancellation, right? Like the the the, the political sort of thermostat has has fluctuated through time. And again, I, I I still think it's the case that those who are typically out of power are the ones that embrace tools like the First Amendment. And and that's why John Stewart sounds trite today, where he's where, whereas he sounded subversive, you know, fifteen years ago. Right. That's right. Yeah. Ben, you mentioned that you, you know, you write for the audience, not for the the company that you're covering, but, and, and the question is, what is the audience's goals? Are they, is the audience trying to defend democracy um, as, as, as some people might, might see themselves as doing as journalists, or are they trying to get better at their jobs? And if they're trying to get better at their jobs, do they really need to know about, you know, some company slack gone, you know, see, where CEO kind of went rogue and search for that next great, you know, takedown, or is it, you know, Hey, like this might actually help, help their job. I'm, I'm curious how you think about how tech journalists should should view their their, their tech, job. tech in particular i mean i think there are lots of different publications who reach different people and are telling you know i mean I don't, i'm not sure there's one answer to that i mean i guess i do think like there's you know i do think like some of these stories where like the founder of a company you've never heard of was like kind of mean to somebody in slack is oh it does not straight it's not something that i would like necessarily publish but on the other hand if Sachin nadella is like reaming people out in slack like that's probably pretty interesting. Like, the, like how powerful people are and how much impact. Particularly, again, if it's just because he had a bad day and somebody didn't get him coffee, maybe who cares? But if it's about it, you know. But I think when the stakes are really high, it's you know it's worth knowing what's going on. And of course, like a CEO's goal is to you know to enhance shareholder value, and that's not always aligned with like the public goods. And and. I actually, and I don't know, and I think that's, so it's totally reasonable to cover them aggressively, and it's sort of unpleasant to be covered aggressively, and I've been on the receiving end of that, and and I, and I don't really pretend it's not, but but I don't really see an alternative exactly. Ben, when are you going to start the semaphore section? I used to joke that there, used, there needs to be a New York Times section in New York Times because there's so much drama going to the New York Times that they reported. <laughs> that about. was me. But oh then, my god, it was that, so yeah, it was that very was fun. So when are we going to have a semaphore section of semaphore in which Ben Smith writes about himself and we just go absolutely meta? You know, and <laughs> no one is interested, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Do you have a Slack? Do you, do you have a Slack at Semaphore in which you enter? We do. Post? I mean, one of the, we have a very like you know it's funny how much the moment has changed. We have like a very grown up, like professional, like nice little jokes, but non out of control Slack. We do try to publish from it as much as we can. I hate it when people are writing fun, interesting, thoughtful, insightful stuff for internal consumption. So we actually have a thing where we publish we leak screenshots of our shit Slack into our newsletters as much as we can. <laughs> Although once we. Actually, I don't want to talk about this. I, I, I once perhaps went a little far on that without asking the person involved, and they were not totally thrilled. <laughs> Gearing towards closing here, I want to fill some some gaps um, in the show. I'll, I'll put this earlier. Antonio, you mentioned the the cultural impact that companies like BuzzFeed had. Can you describe exactly what that cultural impact was? Uh, well, I would I would say read Ben Smith's book Traffic to hear more. Um, hey, that's, that's the right answer. That's you. the right answer. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I do think you ably describe it, actually. I'm not bullshitting. Um, the move from kind of stodgy, 
the New York Times says, and you know, source A with quote against and source B with quote for, and here's the synthesis, the synthesis at the end. And I've got a beat reporter who covers this thing. And this is all the news that's fit the print, even though they still maintain those airs. I mean, who are they kidding? That's not the way the media world works anymore. The fact that you actually went for virality, right? In like a very, and I think Ben put his finger on it, and this is true when it comes to ad tech, my world or any other world, the fact that you can actually measure these things, right? Instrumentation and measurement is key. That's one of the key things to, to media monetization on the internet. And we've always had some version of it, right? Like literally the newspaper advertising business started with, I forget the name already, it's in one of the books behind me, the first circula circulation numbers came out for American newspapers and salesmen would sell against that number. And that would be kind of the reach number that they would sell against if you had higher circulation, you could charge more, right? So we've, we've honed that to the point where literally Ben tweets a thing and within five minutes, you know, already like where it is on the virality graph. And like you mentioned, after you published the Steel dossier thing, you understood you instantly would be, it's going to go red hot, right? And that, that's, that's different in a way, right? And I think the fact that anyone could, anyone could post into that virality sort of competition, right? And it wouldn't just have to be you. It could be Ben Shapiro. It could be me. It could be random anons on, on Twitter. Everyone's competing on a semi-equal footing, not exactly equal footing. And then I, and part of it, I have to say, to be a little critical, that the nastiness of it, the gawker element, right? Like literally taking somebody who frankly isn't that important and isn't public news and exposing like a deep, embarrassing thing. It, it's, it's basically sadism. And they were not, and they were not punching down, to use a phrase at, at all, actually, or they were not punching up, rather, actually punching down. And that, that nasty element, you see something, everyone who came out of that gawker world has something broken about them. And I wouldn't even trust them with like 10 bucks, much less the keys in my car. There's something, there was something deeply broken about that culture. And I mean, again, I, I think your book is good. I, I would actually recommend it. But you know what your book reads like to me? It, it reads like a eulogy over a rotten corpse that got what was coming to it. That's what it reads like. I'm putting that, I'll put that on the, uh, the, 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 the paper. That's going, the... The, that's going on the, that's going on the paperback book, book jacket right next to the Taylor Lorenz quote. <laughs> Wonderful. Happy to be there. <laughs> we thought, or a lot of people thought that the ads, the business model was the problem and that subscriptions would lead us to a better future, but it seems to not have done that. You know what I noticed is interesting because I mean, like the, the traffic, the things you just said about traffic and virality are true, but actually advertisers are not particularly interested in being adjacent to cruelty or to um, the steel dossier, for instance, or to hard news in general. And would, you know, and so it's, so I actually think the business model incentives, and this is part of what I think Twitter is seeing right now, actually detached pretty radically from like the engagement metrics and you know, and I think that's something everybody is in media is currently kind of reckoning with. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, Ben, you're right. I mean, just to, and I, I wrote about this for, for Wired. One of the things that people are missing is that they think, oh, subscriptions are better than advertising because advertising always has this negative connotation about it. It's actually not true. As you said, the first wire services, for example, had advertising businesses attached to them because, or sorry, the first wire businesses had to be relatively nonpartisan because they wanted to sell it as widely as possible. And the same thing happened when advertising was a business model. Macy's didn't want its ads appearing next to heavily polarized content that was making fun of the Democrats and Republicans. Everything had to be, and New York Times was, was the key at this, right? The Salzburgers pioneered this model of having relatively balanced coverage, which meant that Macy's could actually advertise everything it was great. People think, oh, subscriptions are going to get us out of this mess. I, the customer always gets what they want. And in the case of an advertiser, it's relatively non-polarizing, even-handed coverage. In the case of a subscriber, it's having their views repeated back at them, right? So we should be careful what we wish for a world that's subscription-driven. Like, hey, I used to run a Substack. Like, I, I get it. But I don't think that actually leads to a fair, less volatile, and on the contrary, it leads to a much more volatile world, possibly violent world as well.
Yeah, I think I think I think each of these things has their bad incentives and traps. And the good news is that news is such a bad, difficult business that you need like several different revenue lines to have a shot at surviving, so you can be corrupted in multiple ways. Do you want to plug Semaphore? What's the what's the Semaphore business model? What's the unique? How are you not going to repeat the mistakes of BuzzFeed? Um, I mean, it's such a totally different universe, like you know, that we're launching into, where it's sort of this post-viral universe where everybody is feeling totally overwhelmed, doesn't know who to trust, and yeah, so we're trying to sort of create a platform for hard news reporters who aren't, who can't really live on a sub stack, who can't really be solo because they need a level of support and editing and legal support that, that you don't get there that, but, but who can have that kind of direct relationship with the audience that I think people want now to, to that people are going to trust an individual more than they trust an institution. And we're very committed to separating, you know, fact from opinion, including our opinions, saying what we think, bringing in the opinions of people who disagree. So it's a collection of Ben Thompson type, you know, in, independent creators that you're bringing. Well, in. yeah, but they're hard news reporters, which is a somewhat different type and a type that has not really thrived in the sort of open Substack world. People who break news. How would you how, how would you contrast it with the information in terms of? Uh... You know, we're much more centered on the individual voices of journalists, and we're and we're not, and we're not sort of in just you know we're in a series of you know kind of verticals but we're not you know a sort of silicon valley publication i mean we're really like we're obsessed with ai right now i hope any of your audience and reed albergati has been doing a bunch of really good stuff had a great it had the great sort of secret history of elon and open ai the other day that, that i loved and that a lot of people read and who do you think is the audience for that like who's the, who's the buyer i mean the the reader of 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 that particular vertical say is is, yeah, is is hopefully people who and the people who are reading it now are people who are really interested in this crazy ai race right now in this moment which is lots of both people right inside it and people who um and, and a big world of people who are interested and then the advertiser which is different from you know where i've been, you know from buzzfeed certainly is is the is someone who wants to reach that inside audience not someone who's looking to sell consumer packaged goods to the broadest possible number of people so higher cpms just yeah. to be all addictive. yes yes yeah. totally so like the axios model a bit yeah you know it's it's not a total coincidence that like all the a number of successful media startups have come out of washington axios punchbowl politico and it's because they're like they're sort of a you know they're they're you know they're it's it's sort of an honest ad business like punchbowl which is the purest version is like writing for members of congress it's like a great trade for members of congress and you know what like a lot of lobby at tiktok right now really wants to reach members of congress and so they're advertising there like please don't kill us um and actually and it's not you know they don't punchbowl feels no pressure to carry their water they just need to reach that audience and that's that is sort of that is what we're doing that's the business we're in if we're here three years from now you know, doing a recap of what's happened in the past three years. Do you think that, uh, you know, techies and journalists have only gotten further apart? Do we think that there's more polarized media? What's a, are we ending on a note of optimism or, or, you know, skepticism when we look at the, f- the future of media on the current, you know, trends? You know, I'm optimistic. I find the coverage of AI less deranged than the coverage of social media was. I feel like that conversation is more like open in both directions. There are more people in the tech world who are freaking out and think the world is going to end. There are more journalists who are honestly curious and playing with the tools. It's just a less, it feels less polarized to me for what it's worth. And it's just a much more splintered world of like different outlets and different people talking in different spaces. Wait until there's some like marketing agency that claimed they used fucking ChatGPT to make Trump win in 2024. Oh my God, they're already there. There was some story the other day that was like, this political consultant has figured out how to use AI. And I was like, these people are going to make so much money (laughs) from idiots. It is just part of my... Do you think it'll work? Do you think AI will will swing elections? Uh, 
I mean, AI is already what's using what's used in ads ranking already. And my only exposure right, to AI yeah, is exactly. actually in linear. Is it actually in ranking yeah. models? Um, yeah, totally. But to answer Eric's question about tech and media, I think I think each is becoming the other, right? In like in some sense, tech has become media people in the sense that they, like you said, uh, Lenny and uh, whoever the guy is, the software engineering guy, George or whatever. Like like if if you want me briefly and pull request. like if you want like the insider's take of like what is the tech take on culture and whatever like it's there for the taking you don't need to read somebody else and then the the, the, the reverse is actually true the, some of the best paid people at new york times are actually engineers who are part of the digital team who actually create their they're, they're kind of creating a tech platform in a way and washington post shipped their own advertising system like that part of the world so the, the two are sort of I think tech is converging into media more than me. I, I like the Washington Post shut that system down. I think oh, I think yeah. te- media has not been massively successful at building tech products. So you shocked to learn. Um, so tech is but I do think that, But I think <laughs> that these tech, these folks who come out of tech and out of crypto into media are going to find, well, like, okay, like, do we write this true negative thing that's going to piss our friends off or not? And, Ultimately, the ones who do will alienate their friends in tech, but build credibility with their audience and will face a lot of the same, you know, the same tensions that people in journal. I mean, it's, it's journalism, right? It's with all its weird, qual- its weird intrinsic qualities that do tend to, you know, be a little alienating from the people you cover. Ben, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. This was really fun. It's, it's, it's we good it. to talk to you guys. Okay. Likewise, ben. Thank you for your blurb, Antonio. <laughs> the rotting corpse I... thing. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll 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 tweet it actually as the when this thing comes out great so. great perfect thanks <laughs> secureframe is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance secureframe helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks not months and it's used by thousands of companies like angelist coda and remote i believe in the company so much i invested in it and i recommend it to all my portfolio companies sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention moment of zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes from founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, it's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Thank you.